The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network, which can be found at cement.media. That's cement, C-E-M-E-N-T dot media. Welcome to episode number 201 of the Civil Engineering Podcast, the first podcast dedicated to helping civil engineering professionals succeed in work and life. What is forensic engineering and why should civil engineers learn about this discipline? I'm your host, Anthony Fasano, and in this episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast, I will be talking with Heidi Klein, licensed professional engineer and project manager of forensics at Vertex in Denver, Colorado. Heidi's going to educate us about forensic engineering. What is it? What kind of work does it include? What is the role of a forensic engineer when working on a case? On the Civil Engineering Podcast, we like to help civil engineers become well-rounded and learn about all the different engineering disciplines that they may interact with, or you may become a forensic engineer if you're a civil engineer. It's possible, just like Heidi did. Before we jump in with Heidi, I do like to recognize our sponsor for this episode, PPI, a leader in engineering exam prep for the FE and PE exams. PPI's reputation and history sets them apart. PPI has helped engineers achieve their licensing goals since 1975. Their courses and review materials are based on decades of experience. They schedule their courses over two to three months to ensure you can properly retain information and allow enough time for homework. They ensure students don't have to cram for their exam. Their courses come with everything you need. They offer robust programs with access to lectures, forums, learning hub, books, slides, and more. Their programs place a big emphasis on homework. They believe that practicing as much as possible is crucial to exam success. PPI's instructors are very highly rated on student surveys. They are extremely attentive and knowledgeable. Check out PPI today at ppi2pass.com to see all the options available for the FE and PE exams. Again, that's ppi2pass.com. I also want to mention our programs at the Engineering Management Institute. We offer people leadership, project management, and seller-doer or business development courses for you and your firm. We offer general courses that anyone can enroll in on a rolling basis, or we'll do company-only sessions. You need project management for your company? We'll bring our course to you. Or if you'd like, we can even customize our course so we can take our core curriculum work with your learning and development team or some of your project managers and implement some of your verbiage or tools or templates into the training so you have a real custom experience. For more information on our programs, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org and click on the upcoming training button at the top of the website or give us a call 800-920-4007. That's 800-920-4007. Let's jump into today's episode on forensic engineering. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, now I'd like to welcome our guest on for today. Heidi Klein is a forensic engineer at Vertex. Heidi, welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you here today. Before we kind of dive into forensic engineering, which we want to talk to you about, tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us what it is you do on a daily basis for your company. Talk to us about your daily responsibilities. My background is civil engineering. I have a bachelor's and a master's in civil engineering, and I'm a licensed professional engineer in about five states now. 
my day-to-day forensic engineering, I'm a little bit different than what most people would consider an engineer where they think an engineer is doing design work, normally for new builds. On a daily basis, we kind of go out to sites. We're performing site observations, looking at how things are constructed. And then we go back to the office and write reports, kind of reviewing standard of care, reviewing code, building code, industry standards, manufacturer instructions, just trying to figure out how something was built and then how it should have been built is kind of the summary of how I'll put it that way in terms of the construction side of things that I work on. Talk to us about forensic engineering in general. So you have a degree, a bachelor's and a master's degree in civil engineering, how you got into specifically forensic engineering, and then talk to us about what it is. Like when would someone call a forensic engineer? Take us through like your journey to that. I'll give you kind of industry definition first from the National Academy of Forensic Engineers. They define forensic engineering as the application of the art and science of engineering in matters which are in or may possibly relate to the jurisprudence system, inclusive of alternative dispute resolution. The simplified version of that is basically we provide engineering when there's a dispute going on. So it could be something that most people are familiar with now, that condominium that just collapsed in Florida. Why that collapsed, who's responsible for that collapse, the aftermath of that is kind of a big picture of where we would get involved. Not everything is that extreme, thankfully. We don't want anything to be that extreme. But normally we're getting involved if there's a dispute. So I've done a lot of construction defect work, which is normally related to you buy a fairly new house, a new commercial building, and now there's issues, there's leaks, there's mold, there's stuff going on. We get involved with that. I also have done insurance-related claims. So if hail hits your house, a fire, whatever, and insurance doesn't want to pay out on it, we come in and kind of define the extent of damage or see how much we agree is damage. And we don't get into the insurance politics necessarily, but we just give an engineering opinion on that. There's also like trip falls, premise liability. So you're walking down the street in the city and you trip on the sidewalk and have to have surgery or break something. We go in and see, is that something that should have been maintained? Who's responsible for that? So it can kind of vary in a lot of senses of where it can go and where we get involved. I specifically got into forensic engineering because my dad is also a forensic engineer. He's been running his own company for about 20 years now. He's been a principal of the company. I was eight years old, actually, when I went out first with him on a job site. I live in Denver, Colorado, and we had a massive snowstorm, three feet, four feet of snow in 2003, and it caused a lot of roofs to collapse. So it was an enterprise rental car building. The roof had collapsed and we got called. He got called that week to come out and basically see if the structure was safe for people to go into, for one, and then kind of see why it collapsed. In that sense, sometimes buildings aren't designed for those. That's your 100-year event. Um, We don't necessarily design buildings to withstand to that. So sometimes failure is supposed to happen. But as engineers, we design to kind of try to force it to fail in a certain way to avoid casualties and death. So that's where I kind of got started into it. There is not a good like degree program in terms of colleges that has started forensic engineering. I will give Vertex my company credit. They're starting a program at University of Denver right now to get a degree in forensic engineering. So I think this is something people will start to see more of. 
But most of the background comes in structural, civil, and then there's forensic engineers as well in the electrical, mechanical, petroleum, all of those things. Anything that's built, anything in the built environment that could fail, that could have issues, that could be part of a litigation, a lawsuit, you need engineers for that. So I would not say forensic engineering is just civil, where I kind of live in it. There's a lot of mechanicals and electricals that we also get involved with many of our projects to do the same thing. In terms of kind of like when someone would call us, obviously, if there's been a big failure, that's number one. That's when most people call. But again, sometimes it's as simple as there's a leak and no one knows where it's coming from. I've been called out because this water has been showing up somewhere and no one can figure out where it's coming from. I've done infrared thermography. We've done testing. We do what we call intrusive or destructive testing. We cut open the wall, figure out where something's coming from. So it's not always all the way into litigation. Sometimes it's just, hey, something's going on with my house. Hey, my retaining wall is falling over. Hey, can you figure out what's going on here? On a project, for example, when you're working on a case, you could, I guess, be working for different parties in that, depending on the situation, correct? Yeah, absolutely. So we can be hired either by the plaintiff or the defense Plaintiff is normally the one bringing the issue into litigation saying, hey, I'm going to sue these people. Hey, I'm filing a complaint. And then defense is the people that are the complaint is being filed against. We can be hired on either side. Most cases, an engineer is hired on both sides to give their opinion. Some companies typically try to stay very plaintiff oriented or very defense oriented, just the nature of their business. That's what they like to do. My career, I've always worked both sides of it. It's an honesty thing. It's we're there to tell you what we see. Some companies like to stay one side, typically only work for insurance companies, typically only work for developers, whatever it may be. I see it as we're there to be engineers. We're there to see what we see and tell you what we see. So we work both sides of it most times. And you gave a couple of examples already, which were helpful, but in terms of a project or a case, what are some examples of the type of evidence that you might look for? So usually if we get called out early on enough in the case, we can go out and see the exact condition of what someone saw or what someone's experiencing, whether it be leaks, whether it be mold, which in the litigation world, we can't call it mold. You have to hire an industrial hygienist for that. So that's kind of the expertise of that stuff. But we come out and say, okay, we see the same thing you're seeing. Let's figure out how we can come to where this is coming from, basically. So for instance, if there's mushrooms growing out of your house, where's the water coming from? What's causing those to grow? So we tend to perform the destructive testing. We open the walls up, usually smaller areas that can be repaired, but try to figure out how it was built or what's causing that. And then if there's evidence on that siding or on that trim, we'll keep that in a bag. There's a whole evidence procedure, a chain of custody. We always kind of joke it's the CSI in the building world. So we're investigating a forensic thing, and then we have to kind of retain evidence to show our case when you get to a courtroom. I do a lot of roofs, so we'll take some roof samples. With hail damage, sometimes you can't visually see the damage, and we send it to a lab, and there's testing that can be done to kind of take that sample apart and then see different parts of it without the asphalt necessarily in the shingle or something like that that we can use to kind of formulate our case. Or for instance, a cracked pipe, we've collected those and sent it to a lab and said, is this a failure because of temperature? Is it failure because of construction? What caused the crack in the pipe? So it really depends in terms of the actual evidence we collect on the case. If there's something we feel is valuable, that if we brought it into a courtroom and showed it to a jury, could we say, okay, this is what the issue? 
We also collect it to do a further testing on it. And then I'd say the biggest form of evidence we collect is just photographs. So we almost every case go out to a site and photograph everything we see, photograph the conditions. Again, most of the times we get called when there's still a chance to do that. Every now that now and then there's a case where roof was so bad, they've already replaced the roof and there's nothing left for us to really see. In that case, we do document review. But I'd say the biggest thing is the photographs. And again, our goal is to say, if we end up in a courtroom in front of a jury, what can we show them about this case to prove what we saw? Talk to me about the testimony. Do you have to go in front of the court from time to time as a forensic engineer and testify? And if so, for you personally, how was that process? Is that something you needed to really get comfortable with and build up the confidence for? Talk about that a little bit. A handful of forensic engineers do testimony. That's kind of the ultimate goal for most people is to get to that point where you're being called as a testifying expert. A lot of times in these companies, there's kind of one or two main testifiers and the rest of you kind of just help with the case. So I would not say testimony is something everybody has to do. You can kind of be that support person in the background doing a lot of the project as an engineer as well. The testimony is kind of the end result. The testimony is kind of if the case doesn't settle or even they'll go to mediation or arbitration, which are just kind of scaled down versions of the courtroom where you're not using the, the state government system for that. You're using different parties for that. Basically, what it is, is us just telling what we saw, explaining our background, explaining how we're qualified to look at things, and then explaining kind of what we saw at the case and what our opinions are of the case. To be an expert in a litigation case, you don't have to have certain credentials after your name. You just have to prove that you know something different than the jury may know. If you think of a standard jury, they're not all experts in building construction. So if I can prove that I know a decent amount about building construction, I can be admitted as an expert in a case. I've testified in a bench trial, which was just in front of a judge. That case, I had kind of been the lead expert. I had performed the observations, written the report. The lawyer called me in and had me testify straight to the judge in that case. Kind of went straight into it. A lot of people start with a deposition, which is more just sitting in a room with the lawyers, talking about your background, talking about the case. Again, all of this is under oath. So you're hopefully being truthful is the idea of it. But I know a lot of people get very scared of that or don't like that pressure on them. So it's not for everyone to get to that testimony position. I've found it interesting. I haven't done too much of it yet, but I've been mentored by people who have done 70, 80 trials, 600 plus depositions. It's definitely something that is a big part of the forensic engineering world is being able to speak about your findings in front of whoever the trier of fact may be, whether that be a judge or a jury or an arbitration panel. There's a lot to be said there. A lot of, I say, see it as you're just there to tell the truth. You're just there to tell you what you found. I have taken a couple seminars my old company put on or had hosted for expert witness training, which was a lot of good experience of how to answer the questions, when to give information, when not to give information, when to let your lawyer lead what you're saying. Because there is a lot of that in the courtroom of you don't want to say too much. You don't want to not say certain things. And that's where the, the legal teams, the attorneys come in and kind of direct that. So knowing how to deal with attorneys or talk to attorneys or prep with the attorneys is a big part of it as well. In the world of civil engineering, I think you often have to maybe get up in front of planning boards or agencies. But to me, getting up in front of a judge, I mean, that's a little bit of a different ballgame in terms of level of nerves and what's at stake and things of that nature. So it's good to hear you say it's something you can work on. There's training, there's mentoring and things of that nature, which is great. 
Heidi, talk a little bit about a career as a forensic engineer. I know we might have maybe students that are going to graduate in civil engineering, or maybe we have those that are early in their careers and they're still not sure of what field they want to go into and they might be considering forensic engineering. Talk about the benefits of a career in forensic engineering, You know how you like it, what you really liked about it, just so they can get a feel for that. With forensic engineering, the part I like the most about it is that every single day seems to be something different. I have cases I've worked on for five plus years. That just happens with the legal world. Things take a while. But at the same time, every new case that comes in is a little bit different, different materials, different place in the world, different. I mean, I travel quite a bit on cases, looking up codes and standards, figuring out what cities require. There's a lot of research to it and then kind of putting that in a report. So in some sense, it feels almost like school in some days where you're spending all this time learning something, you got to put it in a report and then you move on. You're on the next case and you kind of forget about it for a while. I like that in terms of the differences and, and every day is a little bit different. I know with design engineering, a lot of times you get assigned a project and for four months, every day of your life, you're working on that same project, designing the same thing, figuring out how to make this work. I've gotten a lot of expertise across buildings because of it. Even though I'm civil structural, we have to understand how the mechanical may play a role, how electrical may play a role with insurance cases, kind of getting into the meteorology side of things. I'm not a meteorologist, but trying to do that research and figure out how hail may impact something. There's a lot of venues you can go with it, I think, is kind of the way to put it. And you can really get specialized in something. So for me, the nature of how I was mentored and then how transitions in my previous company happened, I spent a lot of time on roofs. I kind of became the roof expert. And then all the attorneys knew I was the one to call for roofs. And you kind of become the point of contact for clients, which I think is a cool way that that even though you work in a company, you may have a special expertise that your fellow forensic engineer may not have. And you rely a lot on each other and kind of in a team sense, I think the good engineers that have a company and a team that can do that kind of spread the knowledge and spread the wealth there. There's obviously many engineers that work by themselves. Their company is them and they know a little bit about everything. And, and that's great too. You definitely learn a lot. And again, I feel like every day you learn something new. It's not a stagnant career. I'll put it that way. That's great. Yeah. It certainly does sound like something that's exciting, challenging, lots of different things thrown at you. And you get that education around the different aspects of the building or the building industry, like you said, mechanical, electrical, just because you're around it and you're kind of submersed in it, which I think is great in terms of building up your just general knowledge. Yep. Let me ask this question, Heidi. When determining the cause of building failures and performance problems, how can civil engineers in the construction industry help to kind of make that process easier for forensic engineers? And what role, if any, do they play in all of this? We would call this more of a design engineer is is the role that you're playing in that sense. And a big part of that is knowing the codes and standards up front. We kind of review everything after the fact and have to figure it out after the fact, but they have the opportunity to know how to do something ahead of the construction. So when they're designing, if they design to the code minimum, and, and we say the code is minimum, you can always do better than that. And that kind of comes with the industry experience of how things perform. But if they can design up front and integrate stuff up front, it makes the construction go a lot smoother. The contractors know what they're building if they have very well-drawn plans, and then the construction goes better. And then hopefully they're never in a litigation setting. They never have to call the forensic engineers at the end of the day because everything's performing as intended. 
we see in the forensic world, the biggest causes of failure are usually where trades intersect. So it's where the ground meets the building or your siding meets your stone or your window meets a different cladding or anywhere you have two components intersecting is almost always one of the first areas of a problem. Because when contractors come out, if you think of like subcontractors, you have a plumber, you have an electrician, you have a framer, you have all of these people are trying to build this one thing, but they have to get all their pieces to work together. Even with engineering side of things, a civil engineer may only touch the soils. They only may touch the ground. And then they hand it over to the structural engineer and say, okay, design my foundation. If they don't design together and work together, the contractor doesn't know what they're doing. And the contractor just builds what's on the plan. So as design engineers, as engineers on that front side of things, if we coordinate, we work with the other trades, we see how things integrate, follow the standards up front, it makes a big difference. All of those design professionals, architects, engineers, they can also get called into a lawsuit when we do these cases. We can go back to the design and say, hey, they provided a really bad design. So the contractor didn't know what to build. They built what they designed. And so it's always in terms of a standard of care thing as well. Engineers, professionals, architects all have that on them to design well at the beginning to follow the codes and standards because you can get named in a lawsuit if you're a professional um, working on a case. So From the very beginning of something being built to the very end, you have to know what's going on and you better hope that you never end up in litigation. And that's what we all hope. But as long as things are being built, we all have jobs. I'll put it that way for you. So I have one follow-up question on that. And I don't know if you've had any experience with this or not, but now you're hearing at sometimes, I know in the structural world and I'm sure in other areas as well, that they're using this performance-based design process where they feel like the code is maybe you're under-designing or you're over-designing because of the code and materials are changing and things are changing. And so you can go to a municipality and say, hey, you know, we feel like we've got a good plan here amongst this team and we'd like to use kind of these standards as opposed to the actual code. And I'm curious if you've dealt with that, if something were to happen on a project like that, how a forensic engineer would be able to evaluate that because it's not necessarily going off the standard code. And you may not have dealt with this, but it just came to mind because we've had interviewed quite a few people about performance-based standards and it's becoming more and more popular. And I'm just curious if you run into that on your end of a project yet. Absolutely. So Normally, it comes up a little more as plaintiff where we call some of that stuff out, but we refer to it as standard of practice for standard of care. And kind of the easy way to put that is you're driving down the highway, speed limit 65, you're going 75 because that's what everyone else is driving. So that's your standard of practice. You're doing what everyone else does. You're doing how whatever has always been done that way. Contractors tell us all the time, well, we've always done it that way. So what's the problem with it? Standard of care is, you know, the speed limit 65, you're going to go 65 because, you know, at the end of the day, if the cop pulls you over, if you were going 75, you're going 75, you're speeding. So the standard of care comes into play a lot here of kind of did they know the right thing to do and they're ignoring doing that or were they granted an exception? So jurisdictions, cities, states, they all have codes. But at the same time, sometimes a building official will say, hey, in this circumstance, we'll let you get away with doing it this way. If that's presented up front and it's approved up front, then it normally ends up okay. We can't say you did it wrong because it was approved. And I know, for instance, here in in the Colorado area, we just had that big fire that went through a suburban area. And that's become a big issue now as all these people want to rebuild their homes and all the new code upgrades apply. So they're trying to say, can't we build it to how it was built when we owned or first built the house? We'll see how that plays out. I'm curious to see how the city deals with that. 
But that is a big thing of people saying that, hey, we've always done it this way. Why don't we just keep doing it this way? And then the other issue that comes to play with that is also every jurisdiction adopts their own code. So every city has their own code. So a contractor may be building in one city and then the next week they build in another and there may be a different requirement and they just don't realize it. Unfortunately for them, they should. They sign off on the permit saying that they know the standard. It comes into play a lot in the testimony side of things as far as talking about the standard of practice versus standard of care and what a contractor should or should not have done. I know with roofs, sometimes they say, well, there's no code about that. And I'm like, well, you're a roofer. As a professional, you should know that water is going to get in the wall there. So sometimes it's just looking at it with common sense of if you're representing yourself as a professional, are you doing right thing in that situation? Yeah. And that just speaks to the designer, right? Documentation is so critical in everything that you do. And if you get an approval from a building inspector, a town board, whatever the case may be to do something a little bit different, of course, you need to document that. I think sometimes we don't think about this until we actually get an engineering license and we have our own stamp about the responsibility that comes along with it and thinking about what happens in the future if something goes wrong. Do I have the documentation that I need? And you know, sometimes it's not as easy as just getting an approval because like Heidi said, they may have given you some leeway from a code. Well, did you get that in writing? That is an important thing to remember. So last thing, Heidi, I want to ask you here in this segment, those engineers out there that might be considering a career in forensic engineering, any last thoughts or anything else you'd like to tell them about that? And I've seen this across coworkers, people kind of dabbling into forensic engineering. Forensic engineering is kind of a fast-paced environment. It's not your sit for four months and design something. Every day is something new. As I said, you're on the client's clock. Again, if a building collapses, you have days to get out there before the evidence is taken away. I know that's a struggle for a lot of people that come in and, and think they're just going to sit at their desk for a while, work on some stuff everything's kind of an emergency is how one guy put it. He's like, everything's a fire. Everything's an emergency. You're on the client's clock, unfortunately, with things. It is a little bit fast paced of an industry and with attorneys and litigation schedules, deadlines, you don't get to pick your deadline. The courts, the judges pick your deadlines. So you may not get to take that vacation you want to take. And I know that that's a struggle for some people coming into this. I know a lot of people have left forensic engineering because of that, because they want a little more consistency. They want to know what they're doing every day. I don't know how many times I've been called that afternoon and said, hey, can you come out to this site? We're having this leak. We got to we got to document it now. I mean, that's the biggest thing is when it comes to documentation, you can't say, oh, I'll come out in two weeks and look at it, especially if there's a leak or a fire or something going on. You got to get out there right away. That's kind of my biggest thing with forensic engineering, I think, is you have to be ready for anything. And when it comes to testimony, you have to know what to document in those moments and do your best. There's always room for learning. There's always room for improvement. It's definitely a career where I would encourage being part of industry groups and mentorships and having those connections because you're never going to know everything. Building codes are huge. You're never going to memorize the entire building code. So it's definitely a career where it's best to work with other people is how I see it. And then kind of just be ready for everything and be open to opportunities is a good way for it. It's definitely a career that can take you many, many ways. That's great. It sounds like an exciting career path and one that if you're a problem solver, you like to kind of put pieces of the puzzle together and you do it on a fast pace and things are changing a lot. Sounds like it could be a great career path for someone with kind of those characteristics and goals. We're going to take a quick break now. We're going to come back and we're going to put Heidi on the civil engineering hot seat to wrap things up. We'll be back in just a minute. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. 
All right. We are back with our guest for today, Heidi Klein. Heidi is a licensed professional engineer. She's a forensic engineer at the company Vertex out in Denver, Colorado. All right, Heidi, are you ready for the civil engineering hot seat? Absolutely. First question, do you have any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or just something that you do consistently that contributes to your success? For me, it's keeping tabs on everything. Um, I'm really bad about putting my phone down if I'm on vacation or something because I don't like that stress of coming back to stuff. So I'm very aware of emails, try to follow up with clients all the time. And then with that, I stay on top of my emails. I keep them very organized. I keep my calendar up to date with deadlines. It's a very fast paced thing. You get pulled one way, you get pulled the other way and kind of keeping a good organization and keeping tabs on everything is my way of kind of managing that. And I think that's really helped in my career. And I've seen that with other project managers, if they don't have their deadlines in somewhere easy for them to follow, then it, it becomes more chaos. So for me, that just easing that chaos a little bit by keeping myself organized, keeping myself on top of things, getting back to clients quickly makes a big difference in how I handle my career just to keep everything under my control. What is one book that over your career or life you may have read that has stood out to you or that has been very helpful for you that you maybe remember or go back to, if one at all? So I wouldn't say I necessarily have a book. I dabble in a lot of those kind of professional mentorship type books and never get enough time to get through them. But for me, a lot of it has been industry groups. I know in college, I joined American Society of Civil Engineers and was vice president with that group. I made a lot of good connections there, went to conferences. Now I'm part of National Society of Professional Engineers, National Women in Roofing, IBEC, the Building Enclosure Consultant Group. A lot of those have made a big difference going to the seminars, finding mentors there, learning expertise through that and, and that in-person type stuff. With engineers, there's a lot of us who just take those free continuing education credits just so we can get our licenses passed. But at the end of the day, for me, a lot of it's kind of that connection to the industry as a whole and being part of that and spending the time with other people. So I would not say there's a book, but I would say with the webinars, the seminars, all these industry groups, there's so much out there that can support you in your career and personal development. Those have all been a big play in my career. That's great. And you mentioned mentoring now a few times throughout the episode. So I can tell that that's really important to you. And I agree that it's important, I think, to anyone in their engineering career to try to get some mentoring from those that are experienced in the field. You can learn so much from them. But like you said, you have to find them. And these industry groups and associations are, are great ways to be able to do that. Thinking back on the managers that you've had so far over your career, and you don't have to name anyone by name, but if you think about your favorite manager or managers, what made them your favorite? Just trying to understand what some of the best managers in the engineering world do. What are some of the traits and characteristics? I would say for one, project management is a big thing with this. But I think for me, my one manager, when he came in, he was a PhD, brilliant guy, hadn't quite gotten his PE license yet, just with timing, but he spent a lot of time on education. I mean, he would let me ask the dumb questions. <laughs> like, I didn't know what part of a roof was, and I'd say something, and he'd kind of chuckle, and then he'd go show me, or he'd point me in the right direction of a resource, or he'd say, go read this, and then come back to me in an hour and tell me what you learned. And at the time I was kind of like, okay, well, do I just sit here and read about roofs for six hours and, and try and figure it out? But at the end of the day, I kind of realized he gave me that opportunity to both self-learn and have that mentorship and kind of showed me where to find those resources. Or when your manager is not available, how do you problem solve that? How do you go out of your way and try to figure out what you can on your own? 
so that was a big thing for me is just being self-sufficient, but also having that mentorship opportunity and being there when you have a question. I know I've had managers, you ask a question and they kind of just look at you with that face of like, did you really just ask that? And that's always discouraging. And and then you don't want to ask more questions. So I felt like with him, it it was always a great opportunity to learn more things. And he was very hands-on as well. When we go out to sites and he'd point everything out to me. I know I always joked with some old coworkers every time when I was interning, they'd, we got to a site and they say something's missing, missing head flashing on a window or something. Everything that was always missing. I told them, well, I don't know what I would ever be looking for because you always tell me it's missing, but I don't know what I'm looking for because it's not there. And it took me probably two years before I figured out what this was that they were talking about. And so that was the biggest thing for me with him was he would show me something right. He'd show me something wrong. And so I could put all the pieces together in my head. And then I kind of took that on my own when I took over the department and was trying to help train people. I went out and got a, a binder full of roof products. And so when I was talking to someone about a roof, I pulled out and say, this is what I'm talking about. Here it is in person. Here's what you can feel it. You can look at it. You can see it. And that was a big thing for me of just having that hands-on educational experience and knowing that you can ask those questions and learn without necessarily feeling like you're doing something wrong. A manager, their energy, their attitude makes it easier for people to ask questions or not, You know, depending on how they approach you, how they set the expectations for that. I know I try to tell people if I'm managing someone, I want to hear from you. You know, I want to hear questions. I want to help you. I want to guide you. And I think having that kind of open door back and forth philosophy can be really critical to that. And so it's great to hear you talk about that because I do think that that is an important part of helping to develop people for sure. All right, Heidi, we've got one final question for you. We call it the civil engineering career elevator advice question. If you got into an elevator with a civil engineer, maybe they're earlier on in their career and you had maybe 30 to 40 seconds with him or her, what career advice would you give that person? My biggest thing with engineering, especially, is that integrity side of things. As a professional engineer, you're agreeing to ethical practice. You're agreeing to all this stuff. You're getting hired by clients. Clients want the best workmanship. Trying to go out and lie about something, trying to cover something up to get your client more money or less money or whatever it may be. I feel like all of that comes out at some point, especially in the professional world. We are seen as professionals. Knowing what our role is as professionals is a big deal. And then just doing things, kind of the golden rule, how you want to have things done. If you were that client, I think makes a big difference because engineer is a term that people see highly rated or see you as a professional. And, and we want to show that across the industry. There's circumstances that you know people say things they may not always mean. And there's you can do something wrong. But if you own up to that, you be honest. There's a lot of places you can go and you don't want to wreck your career with something being dishonest. Um, You can get your license pulled and your career is over. So integrity and honesty and just doing what is right, I think, are are the biggest things for me in terms of if you're going to take a career up in engineering. Heidi Klein, forensic engineer, project manager out at Vertex, Denver, Colorado. Thank you so much for spending some time with us today on the Civil Engineering Podcast. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Heidi. It is always our goal of the Civil Engineering Podcast to help civil engineering professionals become more well-rounded and learn about the different disciplines in the world of civil engineering and beyond, and really anyone that you might interact with. And I think Heidi did a great job of really telling us all about forensic engineering. Please remember you can find the show notes for this episode at civilengineeringpodcast.com and look for episode number 201. There you will find a summary of the key points discussed in today's episode, as well as links to any of the resources, websites, or books mentioned during the episode. 
all of our episodes are there so you can check them out. I also want to just mention that we did start a new show called The Civil Engineering CEO, where we interview CEOs of leading civil engineering firms on topics of importance in the industry right now, like the hiring challenge, like the infrastructure funding that's coming, like keeping up with technology. You can check out all these episodes at civilengineeringceo.com. Again, that's civilengineeringceo.com. Until next time, I wish you the best in all of your civil engineering career endeavors. The Civil Engineering Podcast is published by the Engineering Management Institute and is part of EMI's Civil Engineering Media and Entertainment Network. The opinions on the show are those of the hosts and guests, not their employers. For information on EMI's people and project management skills training programs for civil engineering professionals, visit engineeringmanagementinstitute.org.